This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Thank you so very much for coming to our closing seminar. Uh, on behalf of my brother Norman and myself, uh, we appreciate those of you that have come out to listen to the important and timely messages which the book, The Great Controversy, has for each one of us. And as we close this, uh, this final session, uh, just a, a quick informational item. I will be presenting the first 30 minutes of our final hour, and then my brother Norman will be presenting the last uh, 30 minutes. And so we'll have about midway a changeover. And so for those of you listening uh, on uh, recording, uh, there'll be a, maybe a slight pause or delay. But uh, so don't be surprised uh, when he gets up uh, in the middle of our uh, presentation this morning. Uh, before we begin, I would just like to seek the Lord in prayer this Sabbath day. Let's bow our heads. Our Father and our God, what a wonderful privilege it is to gather together on your Sabbath hours and open your word, open our hearts and minds to the guidance and the leading of your Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you will impress some simple basic messages as we close this, this, this series about the urgency of the time in which we live in, about the need and a call for fidelity, faithfulness in this time that we live in and how this applies to each one of us here today and listening all around the world. Lord, I pray that you'll grant us your spirit, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Urgency, fidelity, and you. You will have a part in this presentation today because it relates to you and to me and to each and every one of us. So I want to just mention that we're going to look at, in my part of this presentation, the need for understanding the urgency of the time in which we are living. Second of all, we want to look at and examine some examples of faithfulness that are recorded for us uh, during the time of the Reformation. I want to share some historical stories that I hope will inspire and encourage your faith as it has mine. And finally, we want to look at some personal application, how this applies, these, these messages, to each one of us. Romans 9.28 says, referring to God, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. He will finish the work. Jesus Christ will finish the work. He's going to cut it short in righteousness. So when anyone tries to set a date or tell you they figured out when they think the Lord is coming, they're going to be wrong because of this verse. It says he's going to cut it short in righteousness. And so that means to me that time is very short. It is short indeed, and we know he's going to cut it short himself. Romans 9, 28. What time is it? What time is it, prophetically speaking? We are a people based on prophecy, a movement based on an understanding of time prophecies. And I would like to share with you are just reminders of some key time prophecies that tell us where we are in the prophetic stream of time. Since 1798, we are living in what is called the time of the end. The time of the end since 1798, and that's found in Daniel 12, verses 4 and 9. Since 1844, there is time no longer, as my brother Norman mentioned in one of his presentations, 
um, the angel cried with a mighty voice in Revelation 10 that there should be time no longer, referring to prophetic time, since 1844. Also since 1844, we are living in the hour or the time of His judgment. And that is found in Revelation 14, verse 7, in the first angel's message. Ellen White adds this powerful thought to this and says, The angels of God in their messages to men represent time as very short. Thus it has always been presented to me. Very short. Do we recognize and know this as we're living in the very last few moments of time today? Life is short. I have a, uh, my wife's grandmother who... Uh, lived to the age of 112, passed away just about exactly three years ago. I have a picture of her up here on the left. This is a, a me and her at her 112th birthday party. And this is in 2010. And she was a, a very godly woman. She was a Seventh-day Adventist. She was uh, converted, I believe it was through literature evangelism, around uh, in her 40s, I believe. And lived a faithful life uh, for the remainder of her years. Well, I remember, I'm a history teacher, for those of you that don't know this, I remember having conversations with her about the past and her telling me stories. For example, she was born in 1898. That is five years before the Wright brothers ever flew their first airplane in 1903. Uh, cars were just barely beginning to come on the scene in the 1890s. And she remembers the first time she saw a car. She lived in the, the rural back roads area of, of Tennessee. And she said it scared her and she ran into a cornfield. <laughs> she said that when she was living, uh, uh, the first time that there was an advertisement in the paper for a, a local barnstormer, that is someone that flew the airplanes and did the, the stunts and so on, they were coming out to the area that she lived in. And she said nobody could believe it until they saw it with their own eyes. And this is uh, just growing up. Uh, in, she said she was a teenager, so this would have been early 19-teens uh, of some time. But the point I want to make to you is, in my conversations with her, talking to a 112-year-old person, not everybody gets to do that, she would tell me how quickly her life had passed, how soon and how fast it seemed that her life had, 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 had occurred, just as like a flower that was here today and then fades and, and is gone tomorrow. And you know, the Bible kind of presents that imagery for us. All men are like grass and all their glory as the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but what stands forever? The glory of our Lord. So I just want to tell you from the perspective of someone that's 112, probably not many of us will live to be that long. I don't think that's going to happen anyway because I believe the Lord's coming way before any of us get to that age. But take it from that testimony, life is short. We should endeavor to serve and live for God all the days that we have, because they are very short. It reminds me of a passage that I like very much in Isaiah 38. Um, this is Isaiah 38, 18 and 19. Hear the words of King Hezekiah. As remember, he was about to die, and the prophet Isaiah was sent to tell him he was going to die. And he turned his face to the wall, and, and he cried with bitterness and with tears. And he pleaded with God for more time. Do you know why Hezekiah wanted to live longer? I think this is powerful. Listen to his, his words. He said, For the grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. Then he says, The living, the living, he shall praise thee. So why does Hezekiah want to live? So that he can praise God. 
Did anyone read Revived by His Word uh, this morning yet? Any of you following along with that Bible, uh, daily Bible reading program? The, today's reading was Psalm 150. Psalm 150 tells us, um, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. That's why Hezekiah wanted to live. And the question comes to me, is that why I want to live? So that I can praise the Lord and vindicate His righteous and holy character. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The theme of the book, The Great Controversy, has a lot to do with spiritual warfare. And Paul gives a counsel to a young man, Timothy, and says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We are called to be faithful and endure hardness um, and difficulty. And I, I really like how the Lord brings this close to our attention when he spoke in Luke 18 and verse 8 and said these very sobering words. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? I don't know about you, but faithfulness and fidelity is something that God is calling me to do. Faithfulness. Ellen White says, faith has almost become extinct. That's in the 1888 materials, page 1482. Faith has almost become extinct. In her day. So we are called to be faithful and endure hardness or difficulty as a good soldier. I want to share with you uh, a couple of stories from the pages of history about some, some people that were faithful to their belief in God. And the first one is a, a story about a Waldensian. One of our earlier presentations uh, that I gave was on the Waldenses. Um, and this is a Waldensian farmer named Joshua Janivel. Now, this is such a fascinating story that I, I'm not even going to be able to tell it all. I'll just encourage you to pick up a copy of, of Wiley's History of the Waldenses and read it for yourself. But I want to share with you some of the details that this, this everyday farmer that he did because of his resolve to, to stand up for God. In 1655, uh, Johnavell, I'll just call him by his last name, he lived in the 1600s. The Catholic Duke of Savoy launched a military operation against the Waldenses to eliminate them. Not because they were doing anything wrong other than just the fact that they were, uh, they were practicing their religious beliefs contrary to the will of the Pope. Well, a group of 500 soldiers was sent to attack the, the area that Johnavell lived, and he was able to gather together six peasant men and defeat a, a force of 500 soldiers. As they were coming up the hill, they stationed themselves in a narrow pass, and they, they divided themselves, and they, they fired their rifles at such a time, and the, the enemy thought there were way more than, than just seven people. Surprisingly, the next day, another detachment of soldiers was sent out against them. They were attacked by 600 soldiers. This time, Johnavell was able to get 18 men together. Again, he set up, um, as the soldiers are coming towards him, to burn their houses and destroy their crops and kill their men, women, and children, everything in sight. He, with 18 men, successfully drives back 600 soldiers. Still not convinced that he was fighting against God, the Duke sends out another detachment of 900 soldiers on the next day. This time, uh, with a larger force of soldiers, Johnavell was forced to retreat. Remember the Waldenses lived high up in the, uh, the, the Alps, high up into the mountains, and the soldiers plundered their homes and destroyed a lot of their, their, their crops, took away their flocks, and Johnavell, he prayed with his small group of men, 
and then decided as the, the, the soldiers were loaded down with all their treasure to then go and attack them. And he attacked them and got all the stuff back that they lost. And many of the, uh, the soldiers were so terrified, they were running and jumping off of cliffs. Still not convinced. The Duke sends a fourth attack. It's not going to end. It's going to keep on. A fourth attack of 8,000 soldiers. This time, a group of about 30 to 40 Waldenses, led by Jonavel, stationed in uh, strategically located places, drove back these soldiers. A fifth attack. 10,000 soldiers on three different sides. This time, Jonavel's village was burned and his wife and three daughters were captured by the Duke. He wasn't able to, uh, to stop 10,000 soldiers. And it's interesting that the Duke uh, sent him a message and said, I'm going to burn alive your daughters, your wife, and I've already destroyed your houses and your flocks unless you recant. Now listen to the words. I don't have them on the screen, but I'm going to read to them what John Avell's replied to the Duke. In a Christian tone, he responded bravely and said, quote, There are no torments so terrible, no death so barbarous, that I would not choose rather than deny my Savior. Your threats cannot cause me to renounce my faith. They but fortify me in it. That is faithfulness, fidelity. The threats against God's people only cause them to be fortified in their resolve to remain firm to Him. So, what happens next? Now, prepared to fight, the, the Duke sends out fifteen to 20,000 soldiers. And with about 50 men, these are, in, these are, these are incredible numbers. But I'll, I'm here to tell you that in multiple historical accounts, historians whose integrity is above dispute or question will verify these numbers are true. 15 to 20,000 soldiers took on about 50 Waldenses. They don't even, they're just, they're farmers and herders. And incredibly, the Waldenses were able to push these soldiers out of their valleys and regain them again. You'll, you'll have to read it for yourself. It is miraculous and incredible. One historian said that not infrequently at the close of a day of fighting, there would be 1,400 dead soldiers to no more than six or seven Waldenses. Those are just almost ludicrous statistics. But in my own uh, reading uh, devotionals uh, through the Bible the, uh, about a month ago, I was reading in Leviticus, and I read Leviticus 26, verses 7 and 8, and as I was preparing for this seminar, I thought, that's the verse that goes with what's happening. That verse right there, listen to what Leviticus 26, 7 and 8 says, And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword." That's not hyperbole, brothers and sisters. That is literal truth. Incredible, the story and testimony of the Waldenses. I want to share another story with you. Maybe you have given up your faith at times. Maybe you've even turned your back on Jesus Christ, your Savior. Well, I want you to consider the case here of Thomas Bilney. Thomas Bilney is considered to have begun the Reformation in England with his conversion. This is in the early 1500s. Well, he was arrested in 1527 and charged with preaching heresy. Really, the only thing that he was preaching, he was largely still in line with Catholic teachings. He just preached that there's no such thing as the intercession of the saints. There are no saints living in heaven that intercede for us. And for that preaching, he was charged with heresy. He was brought in, um, held in the Tower of London, and under intense pressure to recant, he gave up his views. And eventually he was allowed to go back home. 
Well, after he was allowed to go back home, he was filled with remorse and grief because he had denied what he really believed in his faith. And so he began to preach again. And as he began preaching again, this time even more boldly than before, he was arrested. This time he was also charged with heresy and he was condemned to be burned at the stake. But this time, rather than running and being scared, he was so excited about being burned at the stake. Listen to what happened. Some historians record that as he was being led away to where he was going to be executed in London, that as he approached near the place where the stake and all the, the wood was stacked for his execution, that as he saw that, that scene, that he took off and ran towards the stake. He embraced the stake and he even kissed it and praised the Lord that he was given a second chance to be faithful to God. So if you have not been faithful to God, he is the God of second chances. And that reminds me of who in the Bible? Of course, the story of Peter, right? He denied his Lord when it counted most, but yet he still was given another chance. So please, if you've been tempted to think that maybe uh, you cannot return to God, banish that thought. God will give you a second chance as long as there is life and breath. But we do not know how long we'll have our life and breath, so we must make that commitment to be faithful to God today. Uh, here's another account of another martyr. Some of you may have heard of John Lambert. And this one just about brings tears to my eyes. Um, he was a Protestant teacher, and his big crime was denying the doctrine of transubstantiation, that during the mass ceremony that the, 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 the juice and the bread does not literally become the body and blood of Jesus. And he was executed in London uh, in a particularly cruel manner. Um, he was called before he was executed to stand trial before the King of England. This is Henry VIII at the time. And he had to stand on his feet and answer questions for five hours by a number of just top theologians and top doctors. And after five hours, finally, uh, they, they wore him down and Lambert put himself in the mercy of the king, King Henry VIII. And the king said, I will not be a, a person who harbors heretics. You must burn at the stake. Well, as Lambert was uh, condemned to die at the stake on November the 22nd, 1538, they, 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 they burned him in a particularly cruel manner. And as the fire was only slowly being kindled around him and his lower extremities were being burned, uh, to prolong his agony, they lifted him up with spears or pikes from the flames to, to prolong his agony. And as they did this, as his lower limbs are burnt and charred, he held out his hands toward the crowd and with flames coming from his fingers said the famous words, none but Christ, none but Christ, none but Christ. And then they dropped him down from their spears and he fell into the flames, his upper torso, and he perished. That is faithfulness to God. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life is God's call to each one of us today. Well, I have a personal testimony to share. And uh, this is kind of comical, but I actually hope I don't uh, get too emotional about this because I'm ashamed at the way that I have lived my life. Um, I just turned 40, and for a large portion of my life, I have not lived as a faithful son of God. I was adopted when I was three days old by a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. I shouldn't even be standing here right now. My mom was 15 years old when I was born. I am an unplanned and unwanted teenage pregnancy. 
15 years old, sophomores in a school, and I grew up in a wonderful Seventh-day Adventist home. All of my education was from Seventh-day Adventist schools. I even was able to marry an amazing Seventh-day Adventist wife. And I've been hired by the Seventh-day Adventist Church for 16 years to teach our young people. Well, this is a picture of me in 2009 uh, after my sports team won a championship. And I won't tell you the name of the team. You probably can figure it out. I wore this costume to class in front of all of my students proudly because my team had won a championship. Friends, I'm here to tell you, though, that is not the way that God's people act. Their loyalty should not be to a sports team that's, that's focused on beating other people in a game. Their focus should be on winning and saving souls for the kingdom, being part of his game plan and part of his army that is rightly trained to share the gospel and to finish the work. And I want to just tell you today, if you are struggling with anything, whatever the addiction may be, I had a sports addiction. I spent hours and hours thinking, well, I'm fine. You know, I'm not watching anything that's bad, but I was wasting precious time when I could have been studying the prophecies, reading the great controversy, giving Bible studies and and doing what God wants me to do. And I just want to appeal to you today. Do not delay. God can change your life. He can turn things around. And I want to say, as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Amen. All things but dung for the precious, matchless charms of Jesus Christ. Please, please act upon the faith we have. Don't delay. Let's set aside the earthliness. If you were here for our earlier seminars, we talked about the, uh, the need for setting away or, or separating the earthliness that we have in our lives. And that's what the time of trouble will do. But I want that process to begin even now. And I want to share in my final few moments just a brief, small testimony. This has nothing to do with me, Brian Heinemann, and what great person I am. But this is what God has done for me since I came to GYC two years ago at the Houston conference. He has, and I've committed myself to being fully engaged for him. He has helped me to have faithful personal devotions every day and to be intent on memorizing scripture. He has helped me to have my family have devotions every day. We pray three times a day. Sorry. Even during school hours, when my son is at elementary school, and I'm at my school, he's at different schools, and my wife is at home, we pray at 12.15 like Daniel did three times a day so that we're still praying together. I need a time, I can't cry. Sorry. God has asked me to be a local church Sabbath school teacher and even an elder in the last two years of my church. He has helped me to have a, a Bible study for those who are in darkness. And I'm studying with non-Adventists every Thursday night from 7 to 8 o'clock. And I'll be back this Thursday. He's even given me invitations to preach in area churches. I preached one time in my life up until two years ago. And then this last year, I was asked to preach at seven different churches. 
That had never happened before. I didn't ask to preach there. I didn't ask to come to speak at GYC. But somebody knew me and thought, hey, let's give him a shot. Let's put him up there. I'm thankful that just for the chance, uh, I know I'm not talking about the book, The Great Controversy. I'm trying to tie it all together and just focus on those points of being urgent and faithful. Each one of us, you and me, to the message God has given to us. And then just the other week, a few weeks ago, a member of our church came up to me and said, I, hey, I have a small business. I was on their local radio filming a commercial for my used car lot. And I started talking with him about spiritual things. And I asked him about getting radio time to do a, just a, a religious programming. And he said, sure, that's fine. And so I said to him, well, how much would it cost for a 30-minute program for one year, 52 weeks? And he said it would be around $1,500. And he's like, is that all? And he said, all right, I'm going to go back. I have somebody I want to talk to. And he, met, and he came and talked to me and said, I want to pay for you to be on the radio for 30 minutes once a week. And I'll pay for all of it if you'll do it. And I said, I'm terrified, but I'm excited to talk about my Savior, so I'll do it. I've never been on the radio. I don't know what's going to happen, so please, please pray for me. Uh, I don't know if any of you uh, recognize this uh, animal right here. Uh, my son, just this past summer, started uh, collecting fish. He's fascinated by the natural world, and after uh, we got rid of our TV, it's amazing how God can work transformation in my son, and he is interested as a young person in, in nature and in animals and pets and so on. Well, he got a, a fish. This is a, a pearl garami, and it was his favorite fish. He got it this summer, and one day uh, while I was in the bathroom shaving, and my wife was working on something in another room, and my son was outside playing, I heard my wife scream. She's like, Brian, Brian, get in here. And so with shaving cream on my face, I ran to the other end of the house like, what is it? And she was in my son's room and there on the floor was his prized fish just laying there motionless. Just laying there. I have no idea how long it was laying there. We don't know what happened. Oh, actually, I do know what happened. Let me back up. The, the, he, this fish was kind of a bully to some of the other smaller fish. And we had a small little, if you're a fish person, it's kind of like a breeder tank. And we, I call it the timeout tank. And so I had it sitting up on the top edge. And his aquarium, he has a 29-gallon aquarium. It's up on the top of his chest of drawers. And the top of the aquarium is about six feet tall. And the fish, as it's in that little timeout tank, must have gotten upset about being in timeout. And, and kicked and splashed and flopped over out onto the floor. Well, all of this as I take on the scene in just mere moments, and my wife is standing there in horror, I reach down and just scoop up the fish with shaving cream and just plop it back in the tank, and we just sit there and wait, and it just falls, falls, and, and then it starts to flutter and kick and move. That fish, as it's laying in the middle of the floor, there was no human way possible well, other than me getting it, no fish way possible. Let me choose my words properly. That it could get back where it needed to be. Brothers and sisters, we are the same way without Jesus Christ. We are utterly helpless in our great controversy struggle unless we have His help. Unless we have His grace. We are completely and utterly helpless. And I just want to appeal to you today that we must have on a daily consecrated basis Jesus Christ in our life. We must recognize our helplessness and reach out to our great Savior. 
Remember the Bible verse, Isaiah 27, verse 5, or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. Ellen White quoted that referring to the time of trouble. Let him take hold of my strength. But we must do that actively, not passively. So today I stand here before you in my final moments and say before men and angels, I surrender all. It is time for all of us to surrender all of ourselves. I surrender all of my time. All of my time is his. I surrender my, my money, my finances, not some of it, not just 10%. All of it is his. My relationships. I surrender all of my relationships, my friends, my associates. All of that is his to will and to do of his good pleasure, whatever he asks me to do. Jesus says in Luke 14, 33, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. A willingness to forsake everything. That is what he is asking for today in the great controversy. Who is willing to forsake everything? I'm not going to hold anything back. There's nothing that I'm going to keep from him. He has all of me. Remember Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he wants to do that for you. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So my question today, this, this afternoon, do you long to meet Jesus face to face? Do you desire to give honor and glory to him as your creator and savior? Do you want to vindicate his righteous character before the universe? Do you love Jesus more than anything or anyone else on this sin-filled earth? Do you believe that we shall see him very soon? Are you willing to make whatever changes in your life are necessary to be able to stand when he appears? My final appeal is a homework assignment. I'm a teacher and I found great comfort and, and great guidance in this simple passage found in the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 3. And I, this is my homework assignment, and I want to share it with you and ask if you will join me in following the, the message and the testimony of Jude 1, 3. And Jude writes and says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Did you know the word contend actually means to struggle? It actually means to fight. To fight for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Like the Waldenses did. Like the Reformers did. Like those who started our Advent movement that were inspired by God did. As those living in 2014, a faithful remnant, will you join me in earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints? Ellen White adds this awesome, awesome statement in Desire of Ages, page 633, paragraph 3. By giving the gospel to the world, it is in whose power? Who can finish this? It is in our power to hasten our Lord's return. We are not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of the day of God. Did you know that? It is within our power. If we really long to see him, we can do something about it. So my appeal is simple today. Will you join hands with me? Will you raise your hand and say, I will earnestly contend for the faith. Wherever God puts me, wherever he places me, I will do this before men and angels. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. May God bless you. May he give you strength. 
and, and courage to follow him all the days of your life, however long that may be. Well, good afternoon. That was a powerful testimony, amen. amen. And it's been a privilege for me to speak with Brian this week here at GYC. We've been, we didn't know each other before we were invited together to share. And I'm glad that I've gotten to know Brian um, since this past May. And we are going to continue right through here. I'm just going to get my slides set up here. And this is a continuation of our series here, Urgency, Fidelity, and You. All right, here we go. And I'm just going to pick it right up here. This is looking at the big picture of the Great Controversy. And when you look at the, the Great Controversy, of course, it covers the scope of the past, the present, and the future. And the last chapter of the book, The Great Controversy, is the chapter titled, The Controversy Ended. And I'm going to read a statement from that chapter. This is Great Controversy, page 671. And here we see, Before the universe has been clearly presented the great sacrifice made by the Father and the Son in man's behalf, the hour has come when Christ occupies his rightful position and is glorified above principalities and powers and every name that is named. It was for the joy that was set before him that he might bring many sons unto glory that he endured the cross and despised the shame. And inconceivably great as was the sorrow and the shame, yet greater is the joy and the glory." He looks upon the redeemed, renewed in his own image, every heart bearing the perfect impress of the divine, every face reflecting the likeness of their king. You know, I am looking forward to that day. This is talking about the time in, in the history of this world where Jesus will be able to see, finally, once and for all, the travail of his soul. And we see from Hebrews 12, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And now he sees in the redeemed those who are renewed in his own image. Continuing, he beholds in them the result of the travail of his soul and he is satisfied. Then in a voice that reaches the assembled multitudes of the righteous and the wicked, he declares, Behold the purchase of my blood. For these I suffered, for these I died, that they might dwell in my presence throughout the eternal ages. And the song of praise ascends from the white-robed ones about the throne, worthy as the lamb that was slain to re receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And that is going to be an amazing moment in the history of the universe, one that each one of us will want to be there for. This whole theme for the great controversy is before men and angels. And Ellen White makes reference 
in that quote that we just read from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, how for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross and despised the shame. And I want us to turn now to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, and I have the verses up on the screen, but turn with me in your Bibles, and we are going to look through that passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Wherefore, sing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds, ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. You know, when you look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, this whole concept of being witnesses, called to be a spectacle before men and angels, how we are a spectacle before men and angels, and how we have a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. We are called to run a race that has been set before us. Amen? This race of faith, this race, as it says, look, we have a great cloud of witnesses, and we're going to talk about that cloud of witnesses from Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of faith. From the beginning of time on down to the close of earth's history, we have a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And when you look at the scope of the great controversy, sometimes you may be inclined to say, well, you know, I mean, I'm living in the 21st century, and I have these challenges in my life and all these temptations and struggles. Who can really understand what I've gone through? And that's where we go back to Scripture, and we look at the lives of those who are faithful, those who have gone before us. And when we see how they were faithful against all our odds and no matter what the circumstances, we see that that cloud of witnesses, especially Jesus himself, gives us the strength to press forward in faith. And the way to run this race of faith, it's very clear. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You know, in the great controversy, we're running a marathon race here. And now that we are in the 21st century, we're, we are especially getting close to the finish line of that race. And any marathon runner that's in this room knows that the last thing you need when you run a marathon is to have any weight bringing you down. And you might have something that you would carry around with you during any regular business of life that you would do, but not during a marathon race. When you run that race, you're not going to be carrying a backpack of water with you. Now see, I hiked Taxdome about three and a half years ago in Yosemite, and I had like three liters of water in my backpack and another liter and a half bottle on the other side, and I still ran out of water. Um, for hiking halftime, that was a good thing to have in my backpack, but if I had been running a marathon, that would have been a bad thing to have. When you run a marathon, you just have someone tossing you a bottle, you catch it, you drink, and you keep on going. You don't let it weigh you down. 
And here's the issue in the great controversy. We're called to lay aside every way and the sin which doth so easily beset us. There, you could make an argument that there may be things in our lives that are not necessarily in and of themselves bad, but they weigh us down so that we can't run the race of faith. And certainly we want to, by the grace of God, to lay aside every sin in our lives. But this is the call to faithfulness that God has given us. A call for us to be set apart from the world, to be separate and distinct from the pagan customs and fashions that are all around us. To run a race where we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, the only way we can run this race... Just as the heroes of faith ran the race that was before us, or as we see in, through history, as we look down in the book, The Great Controversy, the heroes of faith, as they lived their lives of faith, the only way they could get through that experience is to keep their eyes on Jesus. Just as the story Brian shared with us, the martyr was saying, none but Christ, none but Christ. Keeping our eyes on Jesus as we see Jesus as he endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, how did Jesus get through the cross? That's who for the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that was set before him? It was seeing each one of us redeemed in heaven. What's the joy set before us as we run the race? It's of looking forward to the day when we will see Jesus our Savior personally. So the joy set before Jesus was those of us who will be redeemed in the kingdom. That was his joy as he endured the cross. What do we see as the joy set before us as we run this race? It's of seeing Jesus in the clouds of heaven. We are called to be witnesses before men and angels. I'm going to read the theme text for GYC this year, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, which says, For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. Now, one of the things that we need to remember here is that we are a spectacle. We are witnesses to not only men and the world around us, but to angels as well. God, as I said in our earlier presentations, God has raised up the second Advent movement to be a demonstration for what he can do in the lives of sinful men especially living at the end of time. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing what God is going to do here in the last days of earth's history because you had Satan, who was a perfect being, created by a perfect God, living in a perfect environment, and he became the author of sin and rebellion. We call it the mystery of iniquity. Here, Satan had every possible advantage he could have had, and yet Satan blew it. And he's tried to bring that rebellion here to this earth. And look, all of us have participated in that. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But by the grace of God, God is going to flip the great controversy on its head, so to speak, because Satan is saying, God's not fair. His law is arbitrary. It's not just. Why don't you do it the way I suggest you do it? His law can't be kept. And God is saying, I'm going to take sinful human beings, especially from the second advent movement, living down at the end of earth's history, and they're going to come from the weakest of the weak generation of humanity. 
They're living at a time when the earth has been weakened by 6,000 years of sin, and God is going to show that he can use his power to take degenerate humanity and transform them into the likeness of Christ. And at that point, Satan won't have anything left to say in the great controversy. We are a spectacle before men and angels. The angels are watching to see if the grace of God can really do what God says it can do. God knows what it can do, but we're a spectacle not only to men, but to angels as well. And that segues into this next statement. This is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. And here the statement says, the plan of redemption had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. You realize that? I mean, the salvation of man is crucial. I mean, that's why Jesus came to this earth, to save each one of us, because he loves each one of us personally. But you realize there's a greater purpose to the plan of salvation or the plan of redemption than just the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded. But notice this. But it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe to this result of his great sacrifice, its influence upon the intelligence of other worlds as well as upon man, the Savior looked forward when just before his crucifixion he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. The act of Christ dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, but before all the universe, it would justify God and his son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan. It would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and the results of sin. And I'm going to put the screen back one quote here. The vindication of God. Let me ask you a question today. When you live your life and you make your decisions for how you are going to live on a daily basis, you know, we all say, yes, we've accepted Jesus as our Savior and we want to accept his righteousness and his salvation in our lives. But here's a question that I have for you. When you're making decisions, when temptations come your way, and when you're confronted with choices in your life, what is your mentality about the challenges, the temptations, and the choices that you face? Is your mentality, is this a salvational issue? Or is your mentality, does this bring glory to God's name? Because you see there's a difference there. So many times, our natural human tendency will be to say, well, does, will this really affect my salvation? Will this affect my standing with God? I mean, I know there's a standard in the Bible, there's a standard in the spirit of prophecy, but if God's a God of grace, maybe he'll just cover me even if I do this thing. But see, that's not the mentality that those who have been saved by Christ should have, right? If we've been saved by the grace of Jesus, we will want to do what is pleasing to him. 
you look at the heroes of faith mentioned in the great controversy, you look at the heroes of faith throughout scripture, take for example Daniel and his three friends. First they're tested on the issue of diet, then they come, um, the three friends come to the issue of are they going to bow down before the golden image. You know how many Jews bowed down to that image? And then the, the princes come to the king and they say, there are certain Jews who have not obeyed your commandment. You know, may it be said of me, when the final crisis hits, there are certain Seventh-day Adventists that will not obey your law. Because notice, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this was their mentality when faced with that test. They were not saying, hey, you know what? If we bow down, God will forgive us. So let's just bow down, then we'll stand back up. Oh, we didn't really do that. God, forgive me for doing that. You're a merciful God. Thank you for forgiving me. Now we can keep witnessing to the king. That's not what they were thinking. And you know what? We're still talking about them today because of their faithfulness. And that is the mentality that God's people who are preparing to go through the final crisis. Listen, if you're compromising on easy little stuff now, you think you're going to do it when you're facing a death decree? And so we need to learn now to be faithful in the little things because of what Jesus has done for us. If Jesus is our best friend, if we love Jesus as the best and dearest, as the chiefest among 10,000, as he was to William Miller, then we are going to want to do that which is pleasing to him. And one of the key issues in our lives then, it's in the first angel's message, fear God, give glory to him, give honor to his name, vindicate the character of God. He vindicates himself through us, it's not through our own strength. But when we choose to follow God fully and completely, God's name is glorified or vindicated through his faithful saints. And when you look through the scope of history, especially as chronicled in the great controversy, God was vindicated by the Waldenses. He certainly wasn't vindicated by the apostate church. He was vindicated by the Waldenses. He was vindicated by the reformers, like Martin Luther, who would say, here I stand, I can do no other. Show me from the word of God where I'm wrong. And God is looking to develop a group of people living at the end of earth's history through whom he can vindicate his name. Let's look at this cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 11. Because, again, you know, you look at, at your life today and you may say, how is it possible that God could take my life and make it into something that will glorify his name. I've fallen into sin, I've messed up, I've fallen short of his glory. How could God use me? Then you go to the, the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, who are the cloud of witnesses that precede us. And you look at the lives of these saints. Now, yes, there are the ones who, as according to record, we don't have a clear record of their mistakes. We see Abel and Enoch. Enoch was translated without seeing death. But you see Noah, of course, he m makes the ark. But, you know, right after the ark, he gets drunk and he has to you know, clean up the mess from that. Abraham, who's mentioned as a hero of faith, he made his mistakes lying to the king of Egypt, um, having Ishmael with Hagar, and the Lord had to come back to him and say, no, it's Ishmael's not going to be the heir. So there are people in the, ch the heroes of faith chapters who made mistakes, and yet God was able to help them pick up the pieces and get back on the pathway of running the race of faith. And you come down to the end of that chapter, 
In verses 39 and 40, it's, uh, it's fascinating. You go through some of the amazing heroes of faith, and you get to verses 39 and 40, and it says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Who is the us that Paul is talking about? Well, it's the group that's called to run the race of faith in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4. And then as you go on down through Hebrews chapter 12, you see that this race leads you all the way to verse 22 to Mount Zion, which is where the 144,000 will stand with God in the last days. This is talking about God's people who will live through the last days. They run with patience, just like the patience of the saints. They will look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. That's the faith of Jesus. This is the third angel's message experience. So all those who obtained a good report through faith received not the promise. What's the promise? Of actually having eternal life in the heavenly kingdom. Earlier in the chapter, it says, Abraham looked for a city which does not have foundations, but whose builder and maker is God. They are waiting for us. And I just want to run through these heroes of faith. Adam, who fell unto sin, but who was redeemed by a faithful God. Abel, who offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Seth, of course, was the faithful. Enoch, who was translated without seeing death, because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. D does your life please God? That was, the, that was the testimony of Enoch. Enoch was translated without seeing death. And the very next verse it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Are you diligently seeking God every day? Because apparently Enoch was. Enoch sought God so diligently for 300 plus years of his life that God eventually said, you can just seek me diligently in the heavenly Jerusalem rather than down on earth. And those are the people that God is going to take with him to heaven at the end of time. Listen, do you think you're just going to skate by into heaven, slip by barely? You know, a lot of times in school we say, well, if I can just pass the test, I'm good. And fine, I mean, you know, studying to at least pass is fine, although hopefully you're studying to, to ace the test. I mean, that was always my goal when I went through school. You don't want to just do well enough. You want to do well so that you're a master of the subject. And in the same respect, when we're talking about our Christian experience, what, you just want to be average? Oh, I'll just have an average Christian faith and show up to church once a week, hour or two, hear a little sermon, maybe it'll convict me a little bit, spend my five minutes a day with God, and then the rest of the time, I'm going to have a good time. Is that what you want? You know, God has something so much better for us. If you're in love with Jesus, there's nothing better than what um, God has for us. And continuing on, Methuselah, of course, his name predicted the coming of the flood. Noah, he built an ark by the which he condemned the world and it led to the salvation of his house. You know, Noah preached for 120 years that a flood was coming, and he got mocked that entire time. Do you think Noah had a credibility problem among the people of the world? You better believe Noah had a credibility problem, but you know what? Noah didn't worry about his credibility. He simply taught the Word of God. And we need to be not so concerned about what's our credibility with the world, 
We need to simply preach what the Word of God teaches, which is that Jesus is coming sometime after 1844. He's developing a group of people who will have the patience of the saints, who will keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That is our message. And we've been preaching that since 1844. People may say we've lost credibility. I'm not so concerned about what those people are saying. Because the message of the Bible is that our Savior and Lord, Jesus, is coming back in the clouds of heaven. And by his grace and through his power, I want to be ready to meet him. And just like Noah, I'm going to preach it until he comes. We see Abraham. He's a hero of faith. Amazingly, he's a demonstration of the three angels' messages in Genesis chapter 22. God says, now I know that you fear me because you've offered up your only son. In Romans 4, it says that he was strong in faith, giving glory to God when he believed that God could give him and Sarah a child when he was past childbearing age. And in his life, he came out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is the land of Babylon. That's the second angel's message of coming out of Babylon. And he lived out the third angel's message in, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse um, 15. It talks about he patiently endured and he obtained the promise. He had the experience of patience and endurance, which is part of the third angel's message. He's, that's why he's the father of faith, especially to those of us living in the last days. He's a demonstration of the third angel's message or the three angel's messages. Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. Isaac also partook of the promises. Jacob, he struggled with Jesus, the mighty angel. He went through the first real Jacob's time of trouble. And you know, you study that whole experience, and I don't have a lot of time to mention this, but it's interesting. When you go to patriarchs and prophets, it says that Jesus, who was the angel, in order to test Jacob's faith, also reminded Jacob of his sin, just as Satan was reminding Jacob of his sin, which tells me that in Jacob's time of trouble, not only is Satan going to be reminding us of our sins of the past, but as Jesus has left his role as our intercessor and mediator in the heavenly sanctuary, it almost implies that God will be trying to remind us of our past sin as well. And that's why if we have any unconfessed, unrepented of sins in our lives, we won't go through the time of trouble. That's why it's such an intense issue, but that's why God is such a merciful and gracious God giving us a time of probation now to prepare for that time. Joseph, of course, was faithful in all of his life. He was an example of um, fidelity and faithfulness in the area of even sexual temptations to young people today. Listen, young people, you don't have to give in to that stuff. You can be faithful to the Lord in every aspect. Moses, of course, was the great hero of faith. By the time he came to the end of his life, he prophesied that the Messiah would come who would be like him. That was a messianic prophecy. And we go down through the list. Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Isaiah was son in half. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. I mean, these are the cloud of witnesses that come before us. The minor prophets, John the Baptist, who had his head cut off, and of course, Jesus, the greatest in the cloud of witnesses, who gives us um, his sacrifice so that we can receive forgiveness of sins. But not only that, he gives us an example for us to follow after. And then the apostles came after Jesus, Paul included. Then we come to the Waldenses, the reformers, which we've talked about. All of these are heroes of faith. When you think about what the Waldenses, they were willing to die no matter what. Revelation 12, 11, they, lo they love not their lives unto the death. 
They were willing to die for their faith. Martin Luther was willing to die if that's what it took. John Huss died for his faith. Jerome died for his faith. Many others did, many of the Waldenses. These are the cloud of witnesses that when we look at the history of the great controversy, the past, the present, and the future, and you know what? There is no guarantee that we will not be martyrs for the faith before the coming of Jesus. When you look at the prophecy of how God will send Elijah the prophet before the great and coming of the dreadful day of the Lord, you see that the first Elijah was translated without seeing death. John the Baptist, who was Elijah in his day, was beheaded. And the third Elijah, which will be alive just before Jesus comes, which will be God's last day people, there may be Elijahs among us who will be martyrs and Elijahs who will be translated without seeing death. But either way, we want to be faithful. And when you look at the, the message of Hebrews 11, Abel, he was um, a martyr. Cain killed him. But then the very next person, Enoch, he's translated without seeing death. And then you see Noah. God called, called him to stay and build an ark. Then you have Abraham who was called to go out to a different place. So not all of us will have the exact same experience, but we all need to have faith. And then God raised up in the cloud of witnesses the second advent movement that we've talked about. William Miller, the pioneers, James and Ellen White, Joseph Bates, Hiram Edson, and many others. And that brings us now to the very end of time. I believe that we are living just before Jesus comes. Adventism in the 21st century. Do you realize that God did not bring you into existence, so to speak, to just be another average Adventist who would not really care much about Jesus coming and you'd live your whole life in a Laodicean lukewarm state and, oh, that's fine if Jesus doesn't come, I'll just go to rest and Jesus can come someday. That's not what God has designed for you. Did you realize that when God brought you into the Adventist movement, to the Seventh-day Adventist church, the remnant church of God, Bible prophecy, it was God's purpose that he would place his seal in your forehead. Because he, when he places that seal in your forehead, which is a stamp of his divine approval, he is saying, this person has rightly represented my name to the onlooking universe. We are a spectacle unto angels and to the world and to men. And when God raised up the GYC movement, listen, the GYC movement isn't simply raised up by God to be a nice another church program. Good church programs are a good thing. And I've participated in them throughout my life. But when God ha has a hand in raising up a movement like the GYC movement, it's for the purpose of developing a group of people so that we can go home so that Jesus can come back in the clouds of heaven. And he has raised up you to be part of his cloud of witnesses who will be a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, who at the end of time, when God pours out his latter rain power in all of its fullness and the earth is lightened with the glory of his character, you, sitting here today will be a demonstration of what God does when we give our lives fully and completely to him. You know, it's time to stop playing games with God. God's given each one of us plenty of probationary time. None of us here have any guarantee that we'll be alive even tomorrow. And now is the time to make sure that we have surrendered everything in our lives to the Lord and that our lives are a living demonstration 
that we are living for Christ and not for ourselves, that our choices reflect that we are concerned primarily about the vindication of God's name and not so much about our personal salvation. Because at the end of the day, you know who the people that God's going to save? It's going to be the people that are concerned about giving glory to his name in the hour of his judgment. We're more concerned about how our lives are a reflection of God than whether or not we're actually in the kingdom itself. Now, yes, we want to be in the kingdom. Yes, we want to be with Jesus. Yes, we want to be with our dearest and best friend. But we are primarily concerned because we love him so much that our lives rightly reflect his character. So what's the book, The Great Controversy, all about? It's about a cloud of witnesses who have been a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men who were faithful in the first century, the apostles, who were faithful in, as the church in the wilderness with the Waldenses and then the reformers. And then God raises up his second advent movement. William Miller was faithful. The pioneers were faithful. And now we are in this Laodicean lull and God is saying, listen, Adventists, wake up. Give your lives to Jesus. Let's get going with getting home to heaven. Amen? Amen? By his grace and through his power, I believe each one of us will be part of that closing work that God has. And if it's your desire to be among that spectacle to the world, to angels and to men who will vindicate the character of God to the onlooking universe, I invite you to stand with me as we end our seminar. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for what you've done in each one of our lives, for bringing us to this point today. Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful God that forgives us for when we've fallen short. We thank you that you're also an enabling God who gives us power to sustain us through the temptations and the trials that meet us every day. Lord, I pray that we would gain strength from looking at the history of the great controversy from the past and even the present. And as we look to the future, we pray that we would surrender fully and completely to you and that you would come into our hearts and into our lives and that we would rightly represent your name to the onlooking universe. And we pray that Jesus will come soon. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.